Well, good evening again. Glad that you joined us for the 11 o'clock. For me, one of the things that I love about Christmas, and especially Christmas Eve, is the chance just to get around with a group of people and, and sing Christmas songs, especially hymns. There's just something about singing them. But I, this part of the season of Christmas, um, I'm kind of at my fill with Christmas songs. And here's what I mean by that. I have been hearing them nonstop since Thanksgiving. How many of you are in that same category? The day after Thanksgiving, my wife cranks Christmas songs in our home nonstop. We get them in the car and the radio. We go to the store, Christmas. I even showered to Christmas songs the other day. Now, that was unintentional. I was at the Y, and I realized Jingle Bells is playing in the background. And I'm going, this is unbelievable. My daughter is really into Justin Bieber right now. And, and the mistletoe song, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've about had it with the mistletoe song. I'll be honest. But as I, as I think through all these Christmas songs and, and the rich tradition, I think that oftentimes we kind of overlook some of the background behind some of the great hymns that were written. I know that one of the songs we didn't sing tonight is one of the more popular ones, and that's Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts, who was a brilliant, brilliant man. I mean, at the age of four, uh, it was said that he knew Latin, he knew Greek at nine, French at 11, Hebrew at 13. And in 1719, he wrote a bit of a commentary on Psalm 98 and included in it this hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. And when you hear some of the rich history and tradition behind some of these songs, it, I don't know for you, but for me, it just kind of creates this, this energy and excitement when I sing them because I recognize that people for hundreds of years have been singing these same hymns. And what I want to do tonight is to share a bit of a hymn with you that really stood out to me when I was reading the scriptures the other day. It's found in Luke chapter 1. It's written by a priest named Zechariah. I don't know if you're familiar with his particular Christmas hymn, but let me give you a little bit of the background on it. So Zechariah, who is um, one of the temple priests, there's about 20,000 priests at the time. That's what they speculate. So they had quite the church staff. And they, uh, they all had different roles and responsibilities. They all had certain... Uh, things that they were assigned to do. But what was interesting is sometimes that rotation would shift. And on this particular evening, Zechariah had the opportunity to light the incense in one of the more holy rooms. And so he went in with kind of fear and trepidation, as often the priest did, and he started to light the incense and basically um, praying and communicating with God. And out of the blue comes this angel, Gabriel. And he stands near him, and the first thing Gabriel says is, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. And then tells him that, listen, this thing you've been praying about for a really long time, you and Elizabeth, it's going to happen. You're going to have a son. And immediately the text says, Zechariah says, how can this be? Which in the Greek really means like, you're kidding me. This isn't true. It's not going to happen. Like, there's no way. 
I don't believe you. You're lying to me. And so <clears throat> Gabriel said, well, let me give you nine months to think it over. And uh, if you don't know the story, he closed up his mouth and Zechariah was unable to speak for over nine months. Elizabeth gives birth to this little baby boy. And on the eighth day, they take this baby to the temple. And Zechariah still is not spoken. He hasn't communicated anything in about ten months. And he comes to this time where they're about to they circumcise the baby and then they name the baby. And Elizabeth says his name's going to be John. And all of the relatives kind of freak out at this point. Like, they were set on it being Zechariah Jr. Or at least somebody's name within their family line, and yet she went outside of the family name and said, we're going to go with John. And so they, they grab Zachariah, and they're like, come on, what are, what are we going to do about this? And he asks for writing instrument, and on this tablet he writes down his name is John. As soon as he does that, he's able to speak. His voice returns. I don't know about you, but if I hadn't said anything for 10 months, I'm not sure that the first thing that would come out of my mouth would be a Christmas hymn. But that's what basically happened, that he declares this amazing prophecy where in the whole song, or the whole hymn, only two of the lines are about his son, and the rest of the text is about the son. The one who is to come, the promised and awaited one. And so he begins to declare some amazing truth. And what I want to do is just take a few minutes and look at what he said about the advent of Jesus related to this idea of vulnerability. Because I believe that this hymn speaks to one of the attributes of Jesus we don't often talk about. And that is his vulnerability. First of all, I think Jesus demonstrated great vulnerability simply by his coming. And here's what I mean by that. In the text it says in two times, and I'll read them to you, it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. Then later on, the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Now that word come is used twice. And the root word really surrounding that idea is to visit personally. It can also be translated to, to tent upon. It really carries the idea with it that we often talk about when we read John 1.14, which says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, or He came and tabernacled with us, that He was near to us. And what's interesting is it's a word that's often used to describe rescue. In fact, you could even say that It's used to speak of the idea of personally intervening to provide a solution. That Jesus demonstrated great vulnerability in His coming to be with us. He risked danger. He risked being vulnerable. Remember, several years back, my wife and I were on a wilderness trip. We were up in... Canada, and we would take teens for a whole week into the backwoods, and we'd go canoeing and hiking. And uh, it's some of the most beautiful landscape, but also one of the 
moments where I think I got to see people connect with God in ways that are just surreal. And we're going through this one section where we just left the lake and we're taking this small river to another lake and we're in the middle of the summer, it's the dry season, and we're partway down this lake, and it just starts getting more shallow and more shallow, and uh, it's kind of marshy, and we get to this section, my wife and I are navigating it pretty well, but the high school girls behind us weren't quite doing as well, and this one particular canoe kind of gets stuck on the side, and they're trying to push off, and they get stuck on the other side, and then they're trying to push off, and they're not going anywhere. They're kind of log jammed for a moment. And so one of the girls in great brilliance decides to jump out and figures, well, I'll just kind of push the boat along. It'll make things easier. And so she gets out and at first her boot kind of gets stuck and then like her whole leg kind of gets stuck and then she wades out a little further and it's up to her waist. And so now she's just stuck. She's not moving anywhere. She's kind of holding on to the canoe, pushing it, but knowing that I'm going nowhere. And so the person in the boat with her, her partner brilliantly decides, let me jump out and help. So now there's two of them in the muck up to their waist, and they're going nowhere fast. And so my wife and I turn around and kind of make our way back, and now there's like three or four boats close by, and, and I figured I need to rescue Right? I need to come in and, and provide a, a means, a solution to get out of it. And so, what did I decide to do? I tried to rescue from a distance. I would toss a rope. That wasn't working. So I threw like a paddle. I was just shouting instructions, doing everything I could not to enter the mess. I didn't want to get dirty. I didn't want to get mucky. I didn't want to get waist deep and not be able to get out. I wanted to stay as far away from the mess as possible. And what's fascinating about Jesus is that this God who was in the most holy of places was willing to step out of his royal canoe, so to speak, and to enter the mess. He was willing to get dirty. He's willing to be vulnerable to risk, to step into the muck with you and I and to do that on a regular basis. I mean, this Jesus who enters the mess with us, this thing that we often talk about is that His coming in the past also represents a coming that is in the present where He continues to enter into the mess of my life and the mess of your life. And there's this promise that He will continue to do so and will ultimately someday come in fullness. So the first real expression of vulnerability is His coming. The second one that I want to highlight is His loving. The text says, let me read it, For He has visited and redeemed His people to show the mercy promised to our forefathers. So whenever you talk of love, you have to talk about vulnerability. That love creates vulnerability. If you were to examine my life and you were to figure out who are the people in my life that I love the most, which would be my wife Shannon, 
my kids, my family, you would recognize that the people that have the most ability to hurt me than anyone else in the entire world would be them. That they have so much power in essence because I've given my love, my heart, my life to them. Anytime you talk of love, whether it's parental love, whether it's romantic love, any love at all, love demands vulnerability. C.S. Lewis made this statement, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all dangers of love is hell. The one who risks by loving is one that becomes vulnerable. So you have this God who's untouchable, completely self-sufficient, doesn't need anything. He's insulated. He could stay far away, chooses to come, and chooses to love. To take a dangerous posture, a vulnerable, open, able to be hurt posture with us. And what's interesting is the song or the hymn wraps up by declaring what the results of those two kind of acts of vulnerability are, and it's this. It says, because of the tender mercy or love of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. See, the end result of his acts of vulnerability in his coming and in his loving is that there is light in the darkness. Part of why we celebrate Christmas Eve late at night like this is because in the midst of the darkness, there is a light that shines bright. That regardless of what we're going through in life, regardless of what we feel, the pressure, whatever circumstance, there is hope that comes wrapped in a little blanket. That there is light that pierces the darkness. What I want to do to close is just to read from the book of John that speaks of this light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the light.